But one of the things that specifically in cross-border is because of the dual nature and licensing requirements, uh, whether it be for taxation purposes or for advice purposes, it's just inherently complicated. And because of the fact you're dealing with two separate countries, I always say that that cross-border is basically the intersection of three sets of laws in two different countries. It's immigration law, tax law, and securities law. And they don't always perfectly match up. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I feel like I have to say the one and only Rachel Sass. The one and only. Yeah. <laughs> like people will be confused. There could be another Rachel Sass, but I'm not talking to that one. <laughs> there, there was a Rachel Dykeman, my maiden name. But uh, I have not discovered another Rachel Sass. Actually, well, my my cousin married a Rachel, so there is a Rachel Dykeman definitely out okay. there. But yeah, okay. no no Rachel Sass is out there. The one and only. The one and only. The one and only that you're aware of, or that I'm aware of, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I need to do some googling. We'll see. <laughs> Just hunt down all of the other Rachel Sasses. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them you're displeased that they're using your name. Mm-hmm. I gotta I gotta trademark this or something. You know. Absolutely. Tony Sass, all that good stuff. Yeah, it's got a good, it's got a good ring to it, Rachel. So A plus in marketing there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although I will Done say well. the only thing is I thought, you know, I gave it my 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 maiden name. It, that was so hard for people to pronounce. No one could ever get it right growing up through school. So I always got, you know, made fun of. So I kept thinking, someday when I get married. And I got the easiest last name, I figured, right? Like, it's so short, so simple. But on the phone, it is really hard. It's People are like, is it fast? Is it smashed? I think our electric company calls us the smash <laughs> family. Mm. Um, that's that's where there's the difficulty. And I, some people, I have to explain, like, oh, it's like sassy without the Y. And then, but still, some people are like, uh, say that again. So, you know, there's a little bit of difficulty in there. Yeah, well... Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. With a, with a last name like Nelson, I couldn't possibly hunt down all of the other Brent Nelsons in the world and tell them that they need to change course. <laughs> it's not possible. Yeah, that'd be a little bit harder. Like, Brent Nelson, which of the million do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, we are uh, we are lucky that we are joined again by our friend Shiraz Hamed. Shiraz is coming to us from the beautiful city of uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Canada, although we just learned it is the most locked down city in the world. So, um, you know, we're sorry to hear that, but we're also glad to hear that you're still able to project from your basement, Shiraz. <laughs> Shiraz is a financial advisor and portfolio manager with Sartorial Wealth of Raymond James Limited. Um, Shiraz has a cross-border uh, financial planning practice, somebody that we really like and enjoy and a friend of ours. So Shiraz, thanks so much for joining us again. My pleasure to both you, Brent and Rachel. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's still doing this from my basement. Hopefully the, there is light at the end of the tunnel that uh, as the vaccination rates start to pick up, that hopefully I can get out of my basement and actually go back to my actual office, which would be awesome. So, uh, but yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. We hope very much that you'll be able to get out of your basement sometime soon <laughs> So, for what it's worth. If anybody, if any of the authorities in Ontario asked, you're like, yeah, but uh, does somebody want you out of your basement? You'd be like, well, actually two people do. <laughs> there you maybe, go. Maybe that helps you. Maybe yeah, that'll get so you we'll out. start the petition to get me out. That's awesome. Just like the petition to start golfing again. I can't wait to do that. That's also unfortunately banned at the moment. 
Whoa, really? Yeah, no wow. golf, no outdoor activities at the moment. It's uh, it's a tough pill for us, at least in Ontario, to swallow. That's not necessarily all of Canada. Uh, just when things were really getting out of hand from a, uh, a COVID case standpoint in Ontario back in March, they basically said, you know what, we're going to put a stop to all this right now. And we got, it was, I think it was four weeks, and then they just extended it by another two weeks to June 2nd. So hopefully, knocking on wood, after June 2nd, um, let's let's hope life goes starts to go back to some sort of normal. Yes, let's hope. And that you can at least play golf. <laughs> yes, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that was one thing they never did shut down here, even in the height of shutting things down, was golf. It was open last year, for the record. And, and I think that's why there's a lot of, you know, sort of debate between policymakers, whether they should or shouldn't, uh-huh. you know, whether it's safe to have outdoor activities versus not. I don't know. I'll, I'll leave all of that debate to the experts. I'm not one of them. I have my selfish interest because I love golfing, that I'd love to be outside and go do that. And it's 7,000 yards between people, but it's all good. Yeah, I have been golfing. Not very well, but I have been golfing. So there you go. I've been I've been doing it for you. So you need to live vicariously through me. Hundred percent. Just know that I'm there for you. And at least now the weather's at least at minimum starting to get warm. So we're uh, we're happy on that front at least. So you'll see a smile as long as there's sun. Really, I'm smiling. So it's yeah. really. <laughs> So it's, like, it's just peeking through the clouds. Absolutely. Well, it's actually really sunny here today. It's been, it was really cold all of April. Like, you know, April showers bring May flowers. Well, that's exactly what happened. It was uh-huh. raining nonstop for all of April and pretty cold. And all of a sudden, it just like one day last week just warmed up. And it's been like 20 plus degrees Celsius every single day, which is nice. what I think it's like 60, 70s for you guys or mm-hmm. maybe 80s. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not like super hot, but. You know, considering it was cold and you had to wear a jacket, it's nice to not have to wear one. Yes, yes. No, that's quite pleasant weather. We can be jealous of that. We will be <laughs> we will be uh, tormented in the pits of hell soon. Uh, as <laughs> the unbearable say. dry heat that you guys yes. have in Arizona, that's, yes. uh, that's rough. It's just around the corner for us. We get little glimpses of it from time to time. And every time I get a little glimpse of it this time of year, I'm thinking, when am I leaving? When am <laughs> I going somewhere else where it's warm or not? It's warm, but not hot. Yeah, it's the exact opposite of us. When winter hits, we, uh, I mean, all Canadians, I think for the first week or two, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, the snow is coming down. You can get all the, you know, the jackets and everything come out. And all of a sudden the novelty wears off really fast. And then uh-huh. when you start shoveling and breaking your back, shoveling your driveway, then you're like, yeah, I remember why I hated this. Yeah. That's why there's so many snowbirds, which keeps me gainfully employed, which is yeah. great. Uh, yes, you and us both. So, well, speaking of our our snowbird friends, uh, I suppose, or those soon to be snowbirds or angling towards becoming snowbirds, snowbirds in the future. I thought for for the good of the order here that we could talk about a couple of things because it's actually uh, we're we're recording this on May 17th. That's actually the tax filing deadline in the United States, and it happens to be the contribution deadline for IRAs in the U.S. Those those oh so important uh, retirement accounts. But I thought maybe we could look at things from Canadian the Canadian viewpoint from from the American viewpoint. Talk about the contributions, the deadlines, the limits for RRSPs or registered retirement savings plans in Canada and IRAs in the U.S. Talk about things like backdoor Roths or Roth accounts in the U.S. and whether or not that is a good or bad thing in Canada from your perspective. And then we can talk a little bit about just catching up on the year. You know, this has been a, a very strange year, probably a very strange year and a half. Um, and I think there's been a bit of a digitization of self-help uh, in financial advisory somewhat uh, poignantly emphasized through the the whole Robin Hood experience. Um, and maybe from that, it will lead to a conclusion that 
people really need, rather than winging it and doing everything piecemeal, really do need to put together a comprehensive, logical plan for investing, which could be much better for them. So I thought we could talk about those things. And of course, if the two of you have other things you want to talk about, uh, we can talk about those too. Absolutely. So if you want to kick it off, Rachel, perhaps, then I'm happy to jump in. Yeah, that sounds like a plan to me. Yeah. So like Brett mentioned, so we are on tax deadline day. Um, I know a lot of accountants who have already taken off on their vacations for um, after dealing with another long tax year. But like Brent said, it's also the deadline to make IRA contributions. And so and that's for the last previous year. You can make it all the way up up until the tax deadline. Um, same thing goes for you know every continuous year. Now, I think we need to take it back first just a bit and looking at retirement accounts, you know, IRA versus 401k, 401k plans. People know it's typically with your employers. And so, you know, you will put in so much of your paycheck each week or each two weeks, whatever it may be. And then your employer typically has a little bit that they'll put in as well, maybe a matching portion. And that grows and there you go for retirement. IRA is a little bit different. IRA is an individual retirement account. So you're putting the money in yourself. Um, there's a lot of rules with IRAs in terms of contribution limits and in terms of your uh, what your your gross income can be each year. And so that's how we'll get into the backdoor Roth IRAs in a bit. But yeah, so that's just kind of a little bit of the basics. And so we can kind of just go from there. Absolutely. I can fill in a little bit, on, at least on the Canadian side, from an RSP standpoint. So RSP is considered uh, the, the vernacular is registered retirement savings plan. Very similar in nature to an IRA uh, in that it's an individual contributed plan. Uh, so you actually put money in yourself and you receive a tax incentive by the government for contributing to your retirement uh, in that they lower your taxable income by the amount that you do. There is a limit. Every single year uh, for Canadians, it's actually significantly higher than Americans. Uh, this year, I believe, is $27,830 you can put in into your RRSP this year. Um, that's the maximum, again, depending on your income levels. You can also max out to 18% of your income, whichever is uh, lower. That's actually what you have to be able to do. So if you don't make necessarily $200,000 plus a year, you may be not reaching the maximum limit. However, at minimum, uh, you should be able to put 18% of your income away, and it is typically encouraged. Now, if you are one of the rare few left people who are contributing to a defined benefit or defined contribution pension plan, there is a pension adjustment that does happen on your taxes every year. So the amount that you're able to contribute to an RSP typically gets reduced. And if you're ever questioning how much can I put away, this is why it's a good idea to sign up for your MyCRA portal. So you can actually go in and actually get right from the government, right from the horse's mouth, how much can you contribute this year? And the deadline is actually March the 1st of every single year of the following year. So this past March 1st, you could contribute uh, the maximum amount or whatever your maximum amount was uh, for the 2020 tax year. Lucky for us, our maximum amount of contribution is a grand total of $6,000. I mean, if you're over 50, you could put 7000 <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. You get your makeup contributions if you're old enough. We have limitations on making contributions to IRAs. Well, really, these are limitations that apply to taking a deduction and sort of said another way, having the government subsidize what that $6,000 that's going into your IRA. So our in 2020, the phase out started at 169 
uh, sorry, 196. I got that in reverse. 196 thousand dollars of adjusted gross income, um, and then it phased out just north of 200 thousand dollars of adjusted gross income. So if you if you were a you know a doctor earning more than roughly 200 thousand dollars, and you're married and you're filing merely married filing jointly in the United States in 2020, then you would have been phased out. You wouldn't have been able to make a deductible contribution to an IRA, but you can always make a non-deductible contribution to an IRA, and that would be one that you you put after-tax money into the account. So you, you're going to have to pay tax on that money. You don't get to take a deduction. Therefore, it doesn't reduce your taxes by making the contribution. And the way that that usually dovetails with these 401k plans that Rachel is mentioning is that, first of all, a lot of high income earners are working for an employer of some variety. And the employer then has a 401k plan that has the ability to do what are called elective deferrals. Elective deferrals being you put the money in you direct the money to go into the 401k plan, it gets taken off the top pre-tax from your 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 wages so that in effect, the money that goes into the 401k is like deductible money because you're not paying tax on it. And those contribution limits are higher. I think this year was 19,500 or somewhere around 19,000. I, I probably should look that up uh, for purposes of uh, giving all the listeners accurate information, but just know it's somewhere in that range. Uh, <laughs> and the, Google will tell you what the exact number was. But the more the more substantive point is, it's the contribution of pre-tax money where it, it operates a lot like a deductible IRA contribution because the money goes in before it's taxed, meaning before taxes are withheld from those wages, they're contributing into the 401k. It doesn't even show up on the employee's W-2, for example, um, as taxable income. So those those 401k plans could be quite handy, but if you have a high earner, they could be contributing to the 401k plan, but be maxed out where they could not make an additional deductible IRA contribution, but they could make a non-deductible IRA contribution outside of the 401k plan. So you, you can, you know, you can get your, say, $19,000 in through the employer plan, plus the employer matching, plus the $6,000 and your, and your uh, makeup contributions into a, uh, a non-deductible IRA, if somebody was inclined to do that, which I think ultimately then makes the numbers, the contribution numbers as between the RSP and the IRA when it's dovetailed with the 401k somewhat similar, even though the IRA the, number the is numbers, a lot lower. Yeah, the numbers the, wise. They're close. Numbers wise, they're closer. I think the major advantage I'd say that Americans do have is, especially if you're in a 401k and employer, it's an employer sponsored plan. So you do have that matching amount in, you know, in a lot of cases, it's not always there, but uh, in a lot of cases, you do have that matching amount, and that is where effectively for your average employee, that's free money, right? So that's always great. Um, on the Canadian side, you do have what we refer to as a group RSP plan, which is probably the closest comparison to a 401k plan where it's an employer-sponsored plan We may or may not allow you to match. So they may or may not throw in money with you. Uh, and it's usually based out as a percentage of your income, subject to similar limitations and whatnot as well. So it, it's, I think they're both really great but they're very different uh, systems that we have. And they don't always kind of, you know, one for one match up. Like, you know, you guys have the Roth in the U.S. We have a tax-free savings account in Canada. I still will say to this day that I think it's an improperly named account. It should be tax-free investment account because it's not a bank account. And people commonly misunderstand that as a bank account and it's actually not, it's an investment account. So, but nonetheless, tax-free savings account, very similar in nature, you know, limits are about, you know, 5,500 bucks, uh, similar to uh, a Roth. Yes, unless anybody be confused, we're not saying that these two systems are equivalents of one another. <laughs> They're not at all, and they don't operate identically, and both countries don't treat them identically. 
So, all right. So one other, you, you kind of teed this up, Shiraz. One other possibility in the U.S. then is, is the Roth IRA. Uh, similar contribution limits to Roths in the U.S. Similar limitations on making Roth contributions that relate to income, like the ones that I was citing for married filing jointly uh, taxpayers in the U.S. There is a way to make contributions to a Roth, even though someone is above the adjusted gross income limits. And it's what's referred to in the industry as a backdoor Roth. And it basically works something like this. And I should say these, this is sort of a, it's a relatively technical little transaction. So nobody would want to do this without getting good advice. Okay. So this is just a general explanation of the way it works so people can conceptualize it. So number one, let's say that you're an employer and an employee, excuse me, and you have a 401k plan and you have maxed out your contributions, these elective deferral contributions to your plan and your employer has maxed out their contributions into your plan for this employer matching. Okay. So now there's no more money that's going to go into the plan, but the plan says, if you want, you can make additional after-tax contributions into the plan. Usually those after-tax contributions are capped so that the total contributions can't exceed a certain limit during the year. So, you know, we'll say it's $35,000. It's somewhere around there, but it's adjusted for inflation. So the number changes every year. But let so let's say that person decides I want to actually make more contributions than what I've already made. And the plan says, if you, the employee, want, you can treat after-tax contributions as Roth contributions. You just make an election, they'll be treated as Roth contributions. Well, that employee could then direct their additional contributions, their after-tax contributions into the 401k to be treated as Roth contributions. So now their 401k is split into two pieces. One is a traditional 401k and the other is a Roth 401k. The difference being when the money comes out of the Roth 401k, it's income tax free, but you have to put in after tax money. So you're going to pay tax. This is going to be as like withholding tax on, on those wages. You're putting in after tax money on the front end. Okay. That's one scenario. Another scenario is let's say somebody doesn't have that or their 401k doesn't provide for a Roth component, but they still want to make a Roth contribution and they're above these income limits. Then what they could do is make a non-deductible IRA contribution. And so that's after-tax money that goes into the IRA. And then after they've made that contribution, probably not on the exact same day, they decide to convert their traditional IRA that's now holding this after-tax money into a Roth IRA. So they can convert it into a Roth IRA. There's no, re there's no penalty for doing that other than you're required to recognize any of the growth that was in that account, okay? Which presumably there would be almost none because it's happening within a relatively short amount of time. And there are no income limitations on conversions into a Roth account. And so you can, even though you were restricted from making a direct contribution to the, to the Roth IRA, you can make this after-tax contribution, non-deductible contribution to a traditional IRA, then you convert it to a Roth. And so now you have a Roth account, the so-called backdoor Roth contribution. So all of this is to set up that Roth uh, Roth IRAs are very, very popular in the U.S., very popular with financial advisors as well. I'm very curious about whether they work for Canadians or they're more trouble than they're worth. So that's a, a loaded question. And um, so the, my best way to explain it. So first off, I just want to correct one thing. The 2021 contribution limit yeah, yeah, for yeah. Yeah. FSA is actually 6000 not 5500 bucks. Um, they just keep changing that number every year. Or so they depending on who's – they love changing these numbers around, which make it – that's thankful for all of us for Google. 
but to be perfectly frank, so in my practice, because of the fact that I'm a cross-border advisor, we don't do as many Roths. Predominantly, we do a lot of 401k rollovers and IRAs. That seems to be probably the most common transaction that we end up doing. But that being said, the backdoor Roth is an absolutely viable tax-based strategy for American residents. It is not so great for a Canadian resident. And the only reason why I will say this is I don't profess to be a tax expert, but there is an, an extra layer of complication for a Canadian resident having a Roth IRA in that there's a special election that needs to be done. Uh, what's a one-time election that needs to be done with CRA in order to not have the Roth uh, be subject to withholding taxes in Canada that all FIs are required to levy like immediately. And it's not our choice. This is what gets imposed on us. So unless you file that election, that's you can basically get the taxes back on it. But it's um, it's not the most commonly used tool for cross-border purposes. And simply because in Canada, we have our Canadian equivalent, which is the tax-free savings account. But that's a 3520 issue for an American. So that's another separate can of worms as well. Um, although I've been hearing, uh, and perhaps you guys can comment on it, that the IRS is lightening up their stance on the tax-free savings account, in addition to the RESP as well, the education savings plan. Um, but I haven't heard anything official from anybody yet. So the general advice is still avoid if you're a U.S. tax filer. Yeah, unfortunately, I have not seen anything official from the IRS saying that they're um, they're going to touch those things with with a light touch. And the, the I mean the the issue that Shiraz is is pointing out is just that for an American resident to own certain types of foreign uh, retirement accounts or foreign pension accounts, um, some of them are kind of blessed by the IRS in a sense. Although it's it's all very very complex, and I, I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush, but for Better or worse, the RRSP is in the blessed category in certain in certain instances, but that's not the only kind of retirement account you can have in Canada, like we're talking about. And so you could have a different kind of account that's not one of the blessed ones that then has a very high tax and uh, compliance burden in the United States. So it's a, it sounds like it's it's actually kind of similar in that from a U.S. perspective, for somebody to have a non-RRSP account in Canada could actually be problematic for them because they may not get the kind of tax savings that they were hoping for. And then the reverse could be true. A U.S. resident, uh, sorry, a Canadian resident holding a Roth account that doesn't make the right or timely election could have Canadian tax issues that relate to that Roth account that, that really aren't going to serve them very well. Right. I mean, what I always tell everybody is if you already have one, it's not the end of the world. So mm -hmm. it's, it's fine. There's no I wouldn't want anybody to trigger a lot of stuff by selling and, and getting out of it. Like if you have it, it's hard to get it back again. And let's say, for example, that you moved. You just need to make sure that you do speak with a qualified cross-border CPA, get your elections done, and then that way you can keep it going. Uh, especially if you have sizable amounts of money in your Roth. And again, if you're a U.S. person living in Canada and you do, let's say, decide to dissolve your Roth, you have limited options in what you can do else, uh, you know, elsewhere to be able to shield yourself, at least from a either exemption uh, on taxes or deferred tax situation, because there are limitations. And, you know, an RSP only has 27000 that you can really put away. So, you know, if you're hitting the higher income levels, you want to have other kind of spillover methods to be able to continue to shield some money. And if you haven't been in Canada long enough, then that's also another problem. You have to be here at least a tax year before you can start contributing to a lot of these vehicles. That's a big mistake people make as they come here and they immediately, other than pensions, uh, which is a kind of a caveat, and I won't talk too much into that one, but typically 
you need to wait a full tax year uh, before you can then start contributing to any of the retirement accounts in Canada. So you've earned your contribution room effectively. Yeah, all to the point of all these things are very complex. And so when people are ready to make contributions, especially if you have a cross-border scenario, like you really need to talk to somebody before you do it. Like it's, it's a thicket and there's so many landmines and traps for the unwary that you would easily make a mistake if you weren't well advised before you went went off and did the thing so uh hopefully people well, absolutely, that's absolutely. Part. yeah that's a, it's a big one so and i think part of it is is i think you know kind of segueing to one of the other topics is uh you know the whole idea of of the do-it-yourself investor has really taken off in recent years right and you know we're seeing that with this whole robin hood uh, that whole wave of, of, you know, sort of self-directed investing to make it really easy for the individual investor to do it. And I think it's great. I think there's nothing wrong with it. Every type of, of investing paradigm has a fit for the right type of clientele. So not everyone needs full service. Not everyone needs a robo. Not everyone needs a do-it-yourself. And I think there's a place for, for them all. But one of the things that specifically in cross-border is because of the dual nature and licensing requirements, uh, whether it be for taxation purposes or for advice purposes, it's just inherently complicated. And because of the fact you're dealing with two separate countries, I always say that that cross-border is basically the intersection of three sets of laws in two different countries. It's immigration law, tax law, and securities law. And they don't always perfectly match up, right? So you need to really be aware of all the different variables. And unfortunately, people go on forums and all these other things where you may not necessarily have professionals giving you guidance or advice. And then they may turn to their own domestic financial institution for guidance who can probably give you great guidance for your domestic circumstance, but perhaps they don't know as well the uh, the contra country. So like an American institution might not know the Canadian rules and vice versa. So it's always really, uh, it's advised to seek out appropriate counsel, whether it be from an attorney, whether it be from a CPA or a financial professional, somebody who can really, or a series of people who can help you guide through this kind of complicated web of of rules that we all need to kind of go down but i think it's it's something that people do a lot and i think it's great that you should do it and do your own homework do your own research but just be wary of a lot of misinformation because there is unfortunately tons of it absolutely I, i can't agree more i think in this day and age we've got so many like retail investors who you know on reddit and and learning how to do it themselves i think it's it's very much like you said it all depends on your circumstances right for the very uh, I would say basic, if, if that's, uh, I could probably use a better term, but for the basic investor who's just trying to get into it, right? Let's just say someone who's fresh out of school, they've got an extra five, ten thousand $10,000. How am I going to invest it? Okay, do your research, right? You can be on these forms. You could start doing it. But when you start adding in multiple layers of complexity, that's when you really need to start getting professional advice. If you are looking into more uh, foreign investments, you've got the cross-border aspect, your net worth increases, right? We see this all the time in the estate planning context where we get questions all the time. Well, why can't I use, you know, LegalZoom or Rocket Lawyer? Why can't I do my my estate plan online? And there's just, that's a whole nother conversation on its own, <laughs> but it, you know, it really starts off with, you need someone who knows your particular set of circumstances and what those implications are going to be for you. Right. Again, if it's a very simple client, maybe they could figure it on their own. Again, I would probably still not recommend it, but when you start adding a net worth where now you've got a potentially taxable estate, no, those aren't going to be the right vehicles for you. You really do need to sit down with a professional advisor who could really tailor 
everything directly to you. And I think that's exactly how it is on the investment side. Well, and and to kind of dovetail on that, I think there's a, there is a component of access that is is a really good thing. So like to, to Rachel's point of like, you know, legal Zoom or, or other kind of document assembly type programs and clients asking us, you know, why can't I do it on that? Well, I mean, the answer is you can. And like, there's nothing in like the U.S. Constitution that says you can't do that. So you can do that. It might not be the smartest thing for somebody with a more complex situation. But to the extent that those kinds of programs open up access to um, legal documents that are important, like that's a good thing because, you know, really the legal industry prices out a lot of the population because it's just very expensive. Same thing with wealth advisory and financial advisory firms, you know, to a degree, they price out a large portion of the population. So to the extent that technology is allowing access into the industry uh, where it wasn't really available previously, I think that's a good thing. I, I think probably what we would all agree on but you, of course, you're very free to disagree with me once I say this. But but probably what we would all agree on is that like that access is good. The platforms are not always conducive to wise access. And so something like a Robinhood, for example, where it's great you have access and you have free trading, quote unquote, but that doesn't give you any sort of guidance. Um, what is a wise way to do that if you have, say, $200 that you actually want to invest and start investing with? Just going into Robinhood and picking a stock might not actually be the smartest thing to do without some kind of education behind it. That's a fair point. And I'd say the way that I've always described it is, is you know, just like not everybody wants to go and rewire the dishwasher. Right. So similarly, not every individual investor wants to go and completely do it themselves. Some people choose. I always say that you either don't have the time, energy, willingness or expertise to do it yourself. That's when you either look to a professional to do it or then there's a hybrid, which is what I call the robo advice world, which is kind of in between your full service. On one end of the spectrum, you have do it yourself like a Robinhood or a discount brokerage on one end. And then you have a segment in the middle, which is where the robo advisory, where they want a little bit more than what sort of a complete do-it-yourself would be. But you know, you're not really getting an a la carte, uh, you're not getting a customized solution. It's kind of still fairly cookie cutter. So, um, but all of these have a place. I think that's the thing that people always forget is, you know, you'll have one side of the equation that's always bashing the other and vice versa. They all have a place. And I think they're all necessary. And I think ultimately as the end user perspective, that's actually great because now you have choice, you have options. And as you mentioned, Brent, it, it's totally true. A lot of industries were historically priced out for your average person. And so this has actually really opened that up for more and more people to participate. But like with everything, buyer beware, right? So you have to have a degree of savviness. You have to do your due diligence. You have to do your research. Because unfortunately, in some of these scenarios, there's no one, no one's there to tell you no in a lot of circumstances. So you can get yourself into a lot of trouble if you're not careful. And I think that's really where, you know, sometimes people need to learn and, and kind of fall flat on your face a little bit in order to make sure that you don't make that mistake again. We just want to make sure that you don't make a really costly mistake where you're doing things that you can actually cause sort of major or massive amounts of harm to yourself. And not to say that that can happen in a, you know, guided or advice type situation that can always happen there too. Uh, but the idea is that there's more checks and balances and that the probability of that happening, given that there's layers and layers of 
people watching what we all do, uh, that that should be less. So I, I think there's a, there's a, an argument to be made that that's why the spectrum of advice exists. And depending on your comfort level or your needs, or as Rachel mentioned, I agree completely, your complication. So depending on how complex your situation is, then perhaps one scenario is better. Or if you have a really complicated situation, then maybe having a full service environment might be the best solution. Or the variable that I think everyone doesn't talk enough about is how much do you care, right? And I think that's a big one is there's some people who really, um, this is not where they want to spend their time. Like you have to have a real passion for it. And if you don't have the energy, the willingness or the expertise or care to do it yourself, then that's when you bring other people in to help you with it. Absolutely. So one of my friends gave me a really great quote that they're saying for the do-it-yourself investors, the worst mistake you can make for yourself is being right because then you've got that confidence to keep going and to you know make a a bigger bet basically the next time and i think that's funny and i think it's it's true in one sense but it's also true in the sense where you know like you were saying if if you're doing it yourself you really do have that passion and you're investing the time and reading all the financials everything like that then that's good that's a great thing and maybe being right will give you the confidence to take maybe the next step further but maybe, you know, you should also take a step back and not put your entire portfolio into Dogecoin, let's just say. <laughs> um, so maybe a couple of weeks ago, that could have been a good idea. Who knows? Um, but I, I think that's uh, definitely something to consider. And I know my, I, Brent and I have talked about this before. My husband is a big investor. He loves to do it on his own. He's just very passionate. It's his new side thing. And it's great, but it's also good to just like we've checked in before with a financial advisor, with a wealth advisor, just, hey, how are we doing? You know, and just getting a little bit of advice. And then that's it. And he's still going on and doing his own thing. So I completely agree with you. It's, it's a little bit of everything for anyone. And that's a really good thing that at least we have now. Yeah, you want to figure out where do I fall? Right. And what is the best scenario? Maybe a check in is all that I need. It's like, hey, am I totally off base here? And I think that's what people don't um, value, I think, enough in the world of advice. <clears throat> and one of the things that's really interesting phenomenon to see is, you know, you have this sort of, like you mentioned, people, um, I think, sizing their positioning uh, in very interesting ways in the last year. And as a professional advisor, portfolio manager, I think that's actually one of the hardest parts about it, about our job. It's, you can come up with all the reasons to justify, okay, well, I think X is a great idea. Okay, well, now that I've come to that conclusion, how much do I put on? How big is my bet? Right. And that's really the hardest part about this whole job and why, you know, people always criticize portfolio managers. Oh, they don't necessarily beat their respective indices and whatnot. And the main thing behind that and a, and a big variable that people don't always look at is we have to look at risk more than we have to look at necessarily trying to inch out the highest possible return or what we look at is you know, return for every unit of risk that you're taking, right? And so we always wanna look at that and, and make sure that we are frankly staying in business, right? Like the idea is you don't wanna blow up, right? And that's, I think one of the biggest problems that people end up having is they don't size their position quite you know, adequately for what their risk tolerance should be. And then all of a sudden you're now in a situation where now you've overextended in one area and now you may not necessarily get to play again. And I think this is where um, people are always critical of the professionals out there that, oh, your rates of return are muted by comparison to what I could do if I threw it all in something wild. Uh, that will always be the case. But um, the idea behind what we do is more consistency is you want to stay in the game, get a more consistent rate of return over a period of time. That way, again, you can just keep participating and allow the compounding effect to happen. And everything is always, again, subject to your own individual suitability, your comfort level, your risk tolerance. 
And if it's not something that you know how you feel about any of those things, then that's when you may want to contact your financial institution, contact a financial advisor, and make sure that you are doing something that you are comfortable with. And I find that's actually the biggest thing about my job that that is the most interesting part is you have people who may have the appetite for risk to be fairly high, but then perhaps they may not have the tolerance to have that risk to be high enough or vice versa, where when there's a mismatch, that's, I think, what causes problems for people overall. It's just how do I feel about risk overall? And I think that that's not an area that your retail investor typically spends a lot of time thinking about. But we as institutions and financial professionals, we think about that a lot. And I'd love to see over time that kind of being a more broader conversation that your average person talks more about because everyone always talks about when they did, you know, made that big bet and it worked out awesomely. But do you talk about the ones that you totally struck out on? Probably not. So I think this is um, a conversation I'd love to see more people talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the there's a big difference between, say, uh, taking all the money that you think you're going to use investing and putting it into one position that you think is a sure thing and the thing that you're describing. You know, like the the process that you're describing is not the same as just sticking all of your money um, in positions that you think are, are bets. And it's uh, one is, to your point, one is extremely risky. The trying to make bets is extremely risky. And the other is a lot less risky um, because you're because, as you're saying, like you're actually sensitive to the fact that there are risks, the fact that there are risks in particular positions and exposures, and that there are ways to then mitigate against being being uh, unreversibly harmed by one position not doing as well as you had expected, because nobody has a crystal ball. And so you really can't, without some sort of insider information, you can't possibly always pick the right investment. If you're trying to pick them on a, on a single investment by single investment basis, like it's just not possible. Uh, and you don't, you're right. Like you don't hear uh, people talking about the big losses. It's only the unicorns of like the huge, the huge wins, you know, the, the Doge coins, the game stops, the, you know, those, those sorts of things where it's like these huge, huge wins where the multiples are just ridiculous. Like nobody talks about the multiples that are, that have a big uh, negative in front of them, or they've got like parentheses around them. But that's the reality when you're trying to pick single investments uh, and hope that they they pop off that you're going to lose. Well, so this is the difference between gambling and ultimately investing, right? So we're yeah, speculating yeah, yeah. and investing. And I think that's why I always encourage everybody to, if you're not sure, seek out guidance and, and, and make sure that you have a really good idea as to not only what are you doing, but more importantly, why are you investing for the long term? Are you uh, trading for a period of time to get out you know, a certain technical rate of return, whatever it may be, whatever your strategy, just make sure that it's sound, it's defendable, and that, you know, you can look yourself in the mirror, for example, and say, look, I did that and I knew. Um, and like I said, position weighting or sizing your position is literally one of the hardest jobs uh, that we have as professionals. So it, it's it's fairly straightforward to come up to, like, I think X, Y, or Z company is a great solution, but then it's harder to say how much do you put on it. And you know, the one thing at least that we use in implement in my practice is that no position should be big enough to make or break it, right? So, you know, if you got it and you're totally right and you hit your achievement and your target, then you shouldn't be able to go retire on a boat somewhere on it. And then at the same time, if it totally, you know, did, okay, that totally didn't work, um, then you shouldn't be sort of on, on, you know, in line trying to get food. So I think this is where you need to really be careful about how you do things and just be a degree mindful of, you know, unlike sports where you can go in, you know, even if you swing for that home run and you strike out, you will get to play again in life and in finance. If you strike out big, you might not get to play again. And this is why I always caution everybody is, 
you, you don't necessarily need to have the highest rate of return in the world. You need to have a consistent rate of return and allow time to do your heavy lifting for you. The longer that you have in your horizon, um, the less risk, fun enough, you need to take. But it's counterintuitive because that's not what people think because it's not always sexy, right? And I think that's where we're always fighting and where sort of this whole Robinhood phenomenon that we've seen in the last little while is has been kind of front and center is the pandemic put everybody at home. And you they closed off a lot of regular activities that we all used to do. So at least in my case, more so than I think a lot of other people. But because of that, you had a lot of people that kind of picked up on investing as a new hobby. I think that's great. And it's great that people are stepping in to learn more about an industry and in an area that's been frankly pretty mystified for a long time. But you have to do so with cautions that there's real consequences if you don't do it correctly. It's real money. It's real, it's it's real scenarios. And Unfortunately, we did see a lot of that happen with GameStop and, and other things over the past few months. And it's been really interesting to watch this unfold in two decades of doing this professionally. I haven't seen this kind of thing happen before. So it's unique. Uh, I'm going to let the lawmakers and regulators comment on the validity of these things. But um, it is really interesting and there is no free lunch. So you have to just always be aware of what you're doing. Yeah, so good. And the other, you know, the other part of that, of course, is, you know, for, for your clients, you're helping them create an, an objectively uh, tailored plan for them. And then as, as you pointed out, you're the check and balance on them, right? Or the plan is the check and balance on them. So they know if they're straying too far away from that plan or straying too far away from your advice that they're entering into waters that could be risky or waters that at least um, you and they have probably not adequately analyzed, you know, to figure out like, is this actually going to get them to the objective they want? Of course. I, I think one of the things that we are always proponents of is what we refer to as a plan-based benchmark. Um, is what does it really matter, honestly speaking, what the S&P does in a year or in Canada, the TSX or whatever? Like, really, what does that matter to your life? More importantly, we should look at where do you need to be and how are we doing, right? So that's why I'm such a big proponent for actually running a financial plan and making sure you're at point A, you want to be at point B, whatever that may be. What do you need to do to get there? And is it realistic? And then ultimately working backwards. And it's really, that's as simple as financial planning really is, is you may have multiple objectives we take into account potential you know, risk, rates of return, and all these other variables that kind of go into it, but ultimately create a, a real benchmark that's more relevant for you and your life. And I think that's the most important piece that at least a lot of our clientele take away from it is, how am I doing relative to where I need to be? And then that, that's where we know what levers we need to pull. And, and are we under? Are we over? And in some years, you may be, you know, getting an excess return in preparation for the not so great years. And ideally over time, you know, it's never a straight line. It's usually a sine wave, right? So usually ups and downs. And our jobs as professionals are to kind of minimize the peaks and valleys and to make it as consistent as possible and allow time to do that heavy lifting for you. However much time you have, the longer that you have, the less risk you technically need to take, but that's not necessarily going to match up with what your desire for risk or your appetite would be. So you always want to test for tolerance, understand a person's and an individual's comfort level or appetite for risk and be able to create that full risk picture or profile. That way we know, are we doing something that's making sense and that's suitable for you? I think that's ultimately what professionals try to do. And I don't think like going back to our earlier point, enough retail uh, investors take any of that into account um, because there in a lot of scenarios we've seen people like, I'm putting all my money on red. Well, okay, great. But that could go great or that could go totally poorly. And you may get a confirmation bias because you got it right. And then you think you could do it again and again and again, and it'll all work until it doesn't. Right. And I think that's, I think the biggest 
thing that are fears that we have as professionals is we just want to make sure that investors, you know, get the proper guidance, get the proper coaching and, and are in an environment that they can sort of sleep at night ultimately with the decisions that they've made. Yep. And, and helping them to frame it like, like you're describing, you know, frame the reality of what they're doing in the proper context, like you, like time, right? Helping people think about it in a, in a long on a long time horizon with a long chronology that frankly, most people don't think about things in that way. It's it's the exact same with um, kind of our high net worth clients uh, when they're say making large gifts to family, which is a popular way to do wealth planning in, in the US or, or kind of wealth preservation type planning in the US. They very often, even those clients, they view it as it's a gift of X dollars on X date. And I always feel like I'm struggling to explain to them that it's not a gift of X dollars on X date because you have to project it out over 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's a gift of the value of that money in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, which is exponentially higher than what it is today. That's the thing that they're actually they're actually doing. But most people just they just don't view the world on those sorts of long time horizons. But it, it's so critical to to what we do and to what you do and to helping people achieve their goals. Absolutely. And I think, you know, sort of a final point on that. I don't want to belabor the point, but yeah. it's I think it comes down to um, we as humans, I think, really intuitively understand linear growth, you know, but we don't necessarily understand compound growth because it's not it's not easy to fathom. Like if I take a couple steps, I know how far away I am. But if I'm taking compounding steps, I could be really far away. They, they don't really understand that. It's like trying to if I were to give it as an example, if I gave you. Uh, two chalkboard erasers. We're dating ourselves here a little bit because I don't think they use those anymore. But if I told took two chalkboard erasers, I told you kind of uniformly clap your hands in front of you. You could do that all day with two chalkboard erasers. But if I replace that with magnets, all of a sudden you do this, then it's kind of slapped towards the end. And I think that's because the movement gets stronger as they get closer together. And that's really kind of an analogy for compounding growth and why it's such a powerful tool that I think people just don't necessarily have the patience to let that work. That can do your heavy lifting for you. You don't have to bet the farm on every little thing that you do. And I think it's an, it's an impatience thing. It might be a youth thing. I don't know. I, but I've seen this happen to people of all age categories. Um, so it's, I think it's just a human phenomenon that we want it like yesterday. We don't, we're not willing to wait, but you know, there's, that's why it's, you know, patience is a virtue and all good things come to those who wait, but it's easier said than done. It's harder for people to do, but that's, the one thing at least I can take away and tell people is that psychologically speaking, we're not intuitively wired to understand compound growth and the power of tax deferred compound growth, going back to the reasons to use Roths and traditionals and RSPs. The reasons why we use these things is tax deferred compounding growth. It can be one of the most powerful tools that, you know, it's just kind of there and you're not really looking at it because it's not jumping out at you. It's not super sexy. It's not, you know, GameStop going up thousands of percent in, in a couple of weeks. Like it's, but slow and steady, and it does typically end up winning the race over time. So um, tried and tested methods sometimes are always there for a reason. Sometimes it turns out they're there because they actually work. So Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> no kidding. Well, I appreciate you guys giving me another chance to come onto the show. It's always great to talk about these concepts and, uh, you know, just to be a little bit jealous of your sunny weather down there. But uh, uh, it's our pleasure. We thank you very much for uh, taking the time per usual uh We'll add your contact information in the show notes so people know exactly where to find you. Of course, they can also Google you. You'll show up pretty quickly. Uh, so thank you very much, Shiraz. We, we appreciate it as always. My pleasure. Thanks again, Brent. Thanks, Rachel. 
you, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. Uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much. Thank you.